0: Father, we're just grateful to be here, grateful to have the opportunity to study your wonderful Word. so, Lord, guide our our thoughts tonight so that we are uh, in tune with what you want us to learn. In Christ's name, amen. I would imagine that most of us, if not at least many of us, have been to some sort of museum, you know, where they have stuffed animals, like where they set up some sort of uh, nature scene, you know, it could be a river scene. And they've got stuffed birds and stuffed beavers there, and things like that. Uh, perhaps it's a mountain scene. I've seen that you know with stuffed goats and and sheep. I had an acquaintance in l a when we used to live there, and I was there a few times to look at all this. He had a a large extra house on his property. there were four or five houses on the property at least, and um one of them was a very large house uh, that was entirely devoted to his uh, collection of an unbelievable number of mounted heads of various animals. And it was almost, there's almost three stories tall inside and all gutted. So it's just a huge room, you know, like this and taller. Couldn't count them. He also had a full-sized, full size stuffed grizzly bear that shot, and a full-sized polar bear that shot. Um, personally, I, I don't get much out of that, really. I'd rather see animals in a zoo, frankly. I'd rather see animals in the wild, you know, uh, just because uh, something in a museum like that is stuffed. It has no life in it. I've also visited what is known as a wax museum. Maybe you've been in one of those, in a resort town or something like that. It's one of those places where they have full-sized wax replicas of famous people. I like those even less <laughs> because not only do the figures not have life in them, but frankly, the statues are just sort of creepy and you have nightmares about them. I mentioned these kind of museums filled with stuffed animals or wax statues because either one is a really good illustration of the church that we're going to be examining tonight the church at a city called Sardis that's in Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6. Now, it's been a while since we've been uh, in our study of the book of Revelation. And so uh, it was way last year, I think. And so just to remind you of the overall outline of the book of Revelation that we're following, it's not very detailed, but the overall outline is on the screen there. So just to give you a, a reminder, we're in part one. It's this vision that the Apostle John had when he was exiled on the island of Patmos And the book of Revelation actually gives us its own outline, and so it gives us this threefold uh, breakdown of the book, that he's going to write what he has seen, he's going to write then what is now at that time, and that's chapters two and three, where Christ is addressing uh, seven churches that existed at that time, literally existed. And then from chapter 4 onward to the end, it's about the future, what will take place later. So Christ told him to write that down, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place in the future. And in the future has to be a long time in the future. Uh, After 90 AD, the future couldn't have been anything that happened in 70 AD in the city of Jerusalem because the book was not written until the 90s. So we're in that first section, and uh, you can leave that up there if you want, or you can Put it down. So let's talk about the city of Sardis first. It it helps, I think, just to have some some background to the city. The city of Sardis, and I know you're not going to remember all these numbers, but the the city itself was founded about 1200 BC, you know, 1,200 years before Christ. It was the capital of a kingdom called Lydia, the Lydian kingdom. It was first called Hyde, H-Y-D-E, eventually changed the name hardest, Sardis. But the city was very strategically located. It was at the western end of a, of a particular highway that was a very important military road. It was about 30 miles south of Thyatira, one of the other seven churches, about 50 miles from Ephesus, a more famous city to us. point is, Sardis was a commercially prosperous City It was a militarily strategic city for many centuries, in fact, from a military standpoint, the original location of the city was almost it was an, an almost impregnable natural fortress because it sat atop of a hill called Acro- an acropolis, a hill that was fifteen hundred feet high on uh, around it, three sides fifteen hundred feet tall, smooth. Uh, rocky cliffs, basically. okay. Vertical rock walls. City sitting on the top of that. The south side was the only side that provided any kind of reasonable access up to that city. And even that side was a very narrow, tedious, uh, steep, winding climb. So that's where it's set. And the point is that the city was an ideal military stronghold. It was very easily defendable. The negative, though, was that the city really couldn't grow. Okay? It stuck in that size up there, and the city did grow. So eventually, a new city was built around the base of that, that big rock, that hill, and all the people moved down there. They kept the Acropolis uh, just as a place to go to when they were go- attacked. Another feature of the city of Sardis was this impressive necropolis, uh, not Acropolis, but Necropolis. It was a cemetery uh, that sat on a hill, and, but they called it the Cemetery of a Thousand Hills because there were hundreds of burial mounds on that hill away from the main hill that you could actually see sticking up in the sideline, skyline seven miles away from Sardis. From a religious standpoint, it was known through the centuries for its temple, that they built to its patron deity, its patron god. They called uh, Cybele, C-Y-B-E-L-E, I think. Uh, You're more familiar with it by its other name, this god, false god, Artemis. That's what it was known as in other cultures. In the surrounding area around that Acropolis and other areas, there were many, many pagan religions. There was also, interesting, a large community of Jews that lived in the city. Now commercially, it was known for its wool industry, a great wool industry flourished there. In fact, it's said to be the first city ever to perfect the art of how to dye wool. When this empire, Lydian Empire, was in its prime, uh, its kings, various kings along the way, became very wealthy because there was a lot of gold in the area. So just keep that in mind, it's a wealthy city, it's an impregnable city, a victory over it is practically impossible, but even though that's true, and this is very interesting, there were two times in its history, 350 years apart, so two times in its history that Sardis was captured. It happened because the inhabitants of the city became complacent and overconfident in their location. Let me give you the first occasion, 549 B.C. Uh, Cyrus, king of Persia, attacked the city. Now, it was a very difficult city to conquer, obviously, so he laid siege to the city, against the city at the bottom, just going to wait him out, starve them to death. The king of Sardis, or the king of Lydia, who lived there at the Sardis, he didn't really worry about it. He felt very secure atop the Acropolis, and so... He just foresaw eventually an easy victory over these Persians because they were all stuck down at the lower city. They were very easy prey for the Lydian army if the army wanted to shoot at them or anything. However, one of the Persian soldiers, up there on top uh, at the bottom, excuse me, one of the Persian soldiers observed a soldier of Sardis at the top descending this winding path that was really hard to negotiate, if you didn't know something about it, descending this winding path to go get his helmet that fell off. They saw that, unknown unknown to this soldier. In fact, unknown to him, they followed him secretly back up. They knew how to get there. And um, the overconfidence of the Sar- sardinians the Sardians is what they were called, uh, Sardians, um, because of that overconfidence, they pretty much left that access unguarded. They just didn't think anybody could find it the Sardian king who went to sleep very secure woke the next morning to find that the Persians had captured the whole city so that was in 5 what did i say 549 BC it happened a second time 350 years later in 195 BC this time it was antiochus the great he attacked sardis and once again the same issue happened the defenders felt so secure that they just didn't really guard all the walls and they found a way to get up there and they overran of the city. So those two attacks were important times in the city's history. Fast forward to 17 AD. So this is 17 years, you know, what we measure things by now, you know, after the time of Christ. But another important event happened, but it wasn't an attack. It was an earthquake, a massive, great, severe earthquake that did incredible damage to the city. Well, the Roman emperor, Tiberius of that time, He heard about it, and so he donated funds to rebuild the city. And the people were so thankful that they minted a special coin in his honor that had the picture of, I mean, the imprint of Tiberius on it. And they even built a a temple in his honor. The Romans sort of eventually just took control. But as, when the time came that they really were involved and, and taking over control of Sardis, the greatness of this city was all in the past. And that's very important. It was living on its past fame, you could say. In fact, the Acropolis that was reserved for a place to run to, if they did get attacked, uh, it stopped even functioning at all. And it was just viewed as a historical relic. I guess the tourists came to see it or something. Without that, over time, it just had nothing to commend itself. And so literally over time, people began to abandon the city. And there came a point in history that was just no longer inhabited. There is a modern city today that occupies the site of ancient Sardis, and I've never heard of it, but it's called Sart. You can look it up on Wikipedia, Sart, S-A-R-T. In summary, when this book was written, Revelation, the city of Sardis still existed. It was somewhat prosperous, but it was in the process of decaying. It was a city decaying whose glory days were all in the past, So keep that in mind about the city. Let's talk about the church. Christ is telling John to write to the church there. The start of the church at Sardis is not one mentioned in the New Testament. We don't really know when it was founded. Perhaps it was in the uh, 50s A.D. because uh, a lot of evangelism and church planning went out from Ephesus during Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus. It could have been founded there. And like I said, Ephesus was only about 50 miles away anyway. But the history of the church... Parallel that of the city, and that's an important concept. The city and the church had once been strong, but both had lost their vitality. Similar city, church. But when it comes to the church, when you, when you start reading this message to this church that had, was also in decay, you don't find the mention of persecution from outsiders. Nothing's mentioned about all the pressure from the pagan religions, though they were there. They probably had some influence. Nothing is said about the Jewish community that was there, that that was the problem. Nothing is said in the message about false teachers. None of the other problems mentioned in the other seven messages is mentioned. And yet, this church had reached a point where it was declared dead, spiritually dead. Evidently, many of the church members over time had simply grown careless and indifferent to spiritual things, and therefore they were easily tempted by just the culture they were in, the sinful living of the culture. That church then gradually began to decay and decline over years. It became what, what most of the scholars of, uh, who study this section of Revelation would say, it's actually the worst of the seven churches. It became the worst one. Yet, we'll see that the church was well thought of by other people. Maybe even other churches in other areas. They thought it was fine. Just not by Jesus. Maybe we can call this church the complacent church. We could call it the deceived church. We could definitely call it the dead church. So keep all that in mind. We're going to divide this message into six sections tonight. As we move through it, you know all these churches they follow a similar pattern, the messages. So you could you could almost use use some version of the same outline every time. but Here are the six sections. Section number one, the description of the speaker. Okay, the description of the speaker. Verse one, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. That little verb has is actually important. It's implying in this verse authority. It's implying control. So Christ is revealing himself and describing himself to them. Uh, to John, tell the church this: this is the one who controls he says the seven spirits of God. Now that is a title that 's used to refer to the Holy Spirit. The number seven emphasizes completeness and fullness, so it 's symbolizing the the fullness of the holy spirit it 's symbolizing the complete omniscience and power of the Holy Spirit. The spirit knows all the spirit 's purpose is to represent Jesus to these churches and even through and in these churches, these seven cities, Christ was holding. He had controlled, had authority there over the Spirit. Christ is also said to be holding seven stars. That's just another way to refer to what we've already seen in the book of Revelation, that there were seven messengers. Uh, all the evidence, any good evidence at all, says that those messengers, angelos, were not referring to angels. They were messengers of the churches, likely an elder in the church who represented that church, maybe a key elder, one from each of the seven churches. Seven stars, just another name for the seven elders. It's very likely that each one of these carried a copy of the book of Revelation back to their respective churches. So here's the Lord of the church. He comes. He's armed, you could say, with the Holy Spirit and all the powers of the Spirit. And because of that, he's able to recognize and search all the complacency, all the deadness in this church. Description of the speaker. Here's the second section the summary of the problem. The summary of the problem. Christ knows, says he knows, about the true spiritual condition of this church. Look what he says in verse 1 I know your deeds, that you have a name. That you're alive, but you are dead. Now, when he says, I know your deeds, that's not a positive thing. It's not a positive commendation of their deeds. He knows the truth about their deeds, he knows the truth about their works. They were spiritually deficient. Yet, look what it says I know that you have a name. In other words, in the eyes of many, this church was 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 a great church, it's a successful church. They had a name, they had a reputation being fine. But as we'll see, it was only a semblance of Christianity. It was not real spiritual fruit. You know what it's like? We have that expression even in English where we say that someone's particular position is in name only. they, They hold that position in name only, or they have a certain state in name only. That's the idea. He says, you've got a name. You're a good church in name only. The church itself considered itself fine, spiritually alive seems others did as well, but in reality, reality, these so-called Christians of Sardis were living in a way that was uh, just calling into question whether they were true believers or not. The bottom line is that the name Christian did not genuinely apply to them, and Christ knew that. So look what he says, you're dead, dead. So here's a church outwardly active, here's a church... um, conveying the impression that they're alive, but it was all superficial at best. Maybe, likely, there was life in the past, in its history, just not anymore. I mentioned earlier there's no mention of persecution. Why would there be? These church members hadn't maintained a faithful testimony in the eyes of the culture to bring on any persecution. And that's what happens if a church become so identified with the culture in which it's found that there's hardly any difference in the lives of the church members and the lives of those outside the church. It's what happens when a church becomes more committed to traditions. Churches come, become committed to their traditions, their liturg- liturgies, their creeds, their systems of theology. And that's not the same thing as being under the authority of the Word of God. It happens when churches are forgetting the real mission of the church, a true gospel mission, and they're focusing on trying to solve all the ills of the culture, all the social ills, or they're becoming politically oriented. It happens when a church is more concerned about numbers and money than spiritual things. It happens when a church cares more about what the people in the community think about them than what God says. That was going on here. The bottom line is, it doesn't matter how famous a church is. It doesn't matter how large a church is. It doesn't matter what the community thinks of it. That same church can be spiritually dead. Therefore, the church at Sardis was like a museum stuffed with animals on exhibit. It was like a, a museum where wax statues are put on display. Everything sort of has the appearance of being normal, but there's, there's no life to church made up mostly people playing church. Yet, section 3, the condition had not reached the point of no return. Section 3 is this, the outline of the remedy. So we've seen the description of the speaker, the summary of the problem, the outline of the remedy. Christ now speaks directly to the few, few who were faithful in this church. And he does that so that any spiritual lethargy all around in the church didn't impact them, and so that potentially the church could change. Now, he presents the remedy two different ways here. There's the general remedy first and the specific remedy, so that's the way we'll look at it. Here's the general remedy, verse 2. Here's his prescription. It started with an attitude, a certain attitude of watchfulness. Wake up. Strengthen the things that remain which are about to die. That term, wake up, is in a tense that expresses continuous action. So he's telling them, be watchful as an ongoing habit. Don't stop watching. You could paraphrase it. Wake up and keep on being awake and alert and watch. He's really telling them that with this attitude, they need to radically reverse their current attitude, arouse themselves and become alert. Otherwise, they were going to find themselves over time becoming like the majority of the church and blending in with their non-Christian surroundings. Now I told you all that about the city's history for a reason. Think about it. Their own city's history was an illustration of the need for alertness. Stay on guard. The city didn't do that. As I told you, the city fell to the Persians in 549 B.C. because they didn't watch. Fell to Antiochus in 195 B.C. because they didn't watch. Those were tragedies that could have been averted, actually, historians say, with just a few people on guard. Could have averted that whole thing. But there was nobody watching. And the point here in our passage is that the same thing was happening in a spiritual way in this church. A spiritual enemy called lethargy. And complacency was increasingly making its way over time into this church community, and so Christ tells the few they must return to being vigilant. Now this proper vigilance looks what it says there. It's going to result in them doing something, strengthening the things that remain. Now he's saying this to the ones who are lethargic as well it's to everybody. It implies there that there was actually something still there to work with. There were still some things left that the Christians could do to show the genuineness of their faith. There were some persons salvageable. There were some things about the the life of the church that were salvageable if they took decisive action, if the sin was confronted, if error was confronted before it was too late. Otherwise, the encroaching death was just going to keep coming and it's going to reach a point where it's impossible to change. Christ then goes on to state what he knew about the church's supposed works again, which is the reason for this remedy. You're going to have to watch because of what I know. I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. And deeds is plural there. So the problem was not that they were doing nothing. The problem was not one of quantity. The issue was the quality of works. They were busy about some things, and their deeds were all fine. Their busyness was fine when it came to gaining a name, a reputation in the community or in the surrounding areas. Works were good for that, but not not for God. should remind us of what God told the prophet in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. You know, when he went to choose a new king and went to the house there where David lived and thought all of his big, strapping, weightlifting brothers were obviously the choice, the buff ones. And this is what God told him, 1 Samuel 16, 7. God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That applies to this church. That applies to churches. doesn't matter what the people think of them. It matters what God says. This church was just going through the motions when it came to church. So they got no approval from the Lord because he looks for a certain kind of work. He looks for works that are motivated by genuine love for him. He looks for deeds that are motivated by a living faith. And that is what was obviously missing in this church and why the church was stagnant spiritually. That's the general remedy. Now we see the specific remedy. He becomes more specific in declaring the remedy. Look at verse 3. So, you may have a translation that says therefore or then. Uh, the same word can be translated any of those ways. So, therefore, then, remember what you have received and heard, keep it, and repent. So, that occurrence of the word so, therefore, introduces these three specific steps they needed to take. This was the solution for the dying conditions in the church. Remember, keep, and repent. So let's look at them. Here's the first one. Remember, it's present tense. It's a command. That means they were to make sure they were not forgetting the rich spiritual heritage they once had. Back at the beginning. You know how many churches are like that in the history of Christianity? that started for the right reasons in a good way and over time starts decaying. He says if you keep it in mind, it can be a powerful, motivating force in your restoration. So Christ reminds them that they had first, at the first, they had received and heard something. They had received something solid. They had heard something solid. It was the teaching of the apostles. It was the teaching of the prophets. The gospel had come to them. And just so you'll know, keep keep in mind when this was written in the 90s, these people had received and heard a lot. All the rest of the New Testament was completed. Paul's letters were in circulation. They had received that. They had heard that. So he tells them that truth needs to be reflected on. They need to go back and remember and regularly affirm the biblical view and truth about Christ, about sin, about salvation, about sanctification and spiritual growth, and that would give them this strong spiritual foundation as a basis then for renewal. Started there, step one. Here's step two, keep. That's also in the present tense. Keep and keep on keeping. With that term, he's telling them that remembering is not enough. Remembering what they knew that was right is not enough. They had to obey the truth that they knew. As one writer put it, orthodox theology, which the church started with, apart from obedient lives, does not bring about renewal. It's not enough. Remember it, but keep it. And the third step is also necessary It's captured in the command to repent, repent. We have taught on that word before. The New Testament word itself is a word that is a combination word. It means the mind and and to uh, change. And so really repentance ends up being this sense of remorse and sorrow that leads to a change of thinking, a decisive change of thinking, which then produces a change in behavior. That's Repentance a sense of remorse over what is wrong and sorrow, godly sorrow, and a total change of perspective that leads to a change in behavior. So Christ tells them with that sense of sorrow, they needed to confess what they had allowed to happen in this church. They need to turn away from the spiritual lethargy that that they they had allowed to just continue on in the church. I couldn't help but think about this. It's true in your life, in my life, and certainly as a pastor, I know it's been true of many Just how wonderful repentance is. Did you know repentance is one of the most wonderful things in the world? Because when we repent, we change. And the opposite is true. No change in lifestyle for the better can ever occur without repentance. So there's the outline for the remedy, and he presents it two ways, in a general way, in a specific way. This leads to section four, the necessity of a warning. The necessity of a warning, verse 3 continues, Therefore, if you do not, wake up. I will come like a thief, and you will know—you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Now, if that sounds like a threat, it's because it is. It is a threat. And Jesus issued it, this strong warning, because he knew, by the language that's said here, this is what's so sad, he knew, the, warm, the one armed with the Holy Spirit, he knew the remedy would not be accepted by the majority of the church. They weren't going to do it. Most of the church members would not remember, keep, and repent. Most would not turn back at this point. And that failure to wake up evidenced something. It evidenced that the reality was that most of them in this church were unredeemed, they were not saved. They were Christians in name only, and that state exposed them to a possible coming. He says of the Lord when He was going to punish them for their sin. Now, notice he says this judgment was going to come suddenly; it was going to come by surprise, which is the point of the analogy to a thief. Right? I mean, we don't have it on our calendars. You know, I think a thief is coming. You know, February third, maybe it's seven between seven and eight. Thieves don't work. Thieves don't work that way. In scripture, what you find over and over about this phrase, like a thief, is it always carries the same idea of, it's always used to point out the idea of something imminent, unexpected, but the form of judgment. So, just as Sardis, again, it's history, so important, just as Sardis had been caught off guard by Cyrus long ago, Jesus was going to come and be even more of a surprise and defeat them with a huge sense of shock and surprise. Now, you just need to know there's disagreement over whether this surprise, this surprise coming, referred, when Jesus said it, referred to something specific that applied just to this church, something that happened in the immediate years after their writing and their history, or whether Christ was referring to his second coming at the end of the church age. And we know from Scripture that second time, that second coming, will be a time of judgment upon his enemies. The precise hour, we don't know. Just so you'll know, good scholars disagree on which one Christ meant. But I'll tell you where I am on it. It is true that the concept itself as, of coming as a thief is elsewhere used to refer to Christ's second advent, his second coming. I'll give you a few examples. One is Matthew 24, starting in verse 42. So listen to this, Matthew 24, 42. Christ says, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time the night of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have not allowed the thief into his house and allowed his house to be broken into. The analogy there about the thief is applied to the second coming. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord is an expression in in the scriptures that refer to not only the second coming, but even all the events associated with the second coming. 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord, there it is again, will come like a thief. Revelation 16.15, Christ says it there again. He says, behold, I'm coming like a thief. That was still in the future. And so ultimately, to get the point of the warning, it doesn't matter which view you hold, uh, even though the better argument argues for a reference to the second coming. But either way, this is an incentive. It was meant as an incentive for the Christians, the professing Christians at Sardis to take it seriously, to wake up and stay alert. It was an incentive for the wax Christians to repent. So... The necessity of a warning. We come to section 5 now. The severe warning is followed by Jesus clearly affirming now that there are some true believers there. So here's section 5. That's where we're at. Section 5. The reality of the remnant. So we've seen the description of the speaker, the summary of the problem, the outline of the remedy, both generally and specifically, the necessity of a warning, and now we see the reality of the remnant. And now he presents two facts about this remnant. He confirms them here. Here's the first fact. The remnant is small in this church. Small. Look at verse 4. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. That is very strong adversative in Greek, the word but there. It's used when you want to point out in a strong way a contrast. So here's the contrast to the general character of the church with those few members, he says, who actually had not soiled their garments. So the idea of garments here is used to represent their lifestyle. And it very much was an allusion to the wool industry that they were all familiar with, famous in their city. The term soiled means to pollute something, to smear it. So Jesus is using this term to refer to the compromise that was taking place with the culture, the sinful culture. Now, as I stated earlier, they had so mingled with the life of their culture, the pagan life of the culture, so had bought into the agendas of the culture, so had bought into the narratives of the culture, we use that word a lot today, that they had defiled the purity of a relationship to Christ. But again, there were a few, a few faithful followers of Christ who had remained pure, and they were still maintaining a clear witness to the world by their lifestyle and their words. So there's one fact, the remnant is small. Here's the second fact. The remnant will be rewarded. The remnant will be rewarded. Even if there were not enough of them to change the overall evaluation of the church, and that's really the the tone of what Jesus is saying, he did promise a future reward to that small group. Verse 4, and they will walk with me in white. They'll walk with me in white. Now to walk with Christ symbolizes fellowship with him. Uh, It symbolizes true salvation. And he's applying this to the point of, of what heaven is going to be, that he promises them this reward, that if they are true believers, they will eventually be in God's presence in heaven, and they will enjoy his fellowship. To be with him in white was a way of symbolically saying this, here you've been faithful. You did not soil your garments. You sought to stay faithful to your testimony in this culture, but you weren't perfect. Okay. Even the best we do is not perfect. No matter our level of commitment and separation from the culture, no matter our efforts to live pure lives, we know that our lives still have moments of sin and influence by this world around us. And he's promising them, I know that, but in heaven it's going to be different. In heaven you will have no sin. Our feeble attempts to remain pure will be rewarded with Since it's evidence of true salvation, it will be rewarded someday with complete purity. Complete purity. It's a big fancy way of saying the reward is someday we're going to be like him. We're going to be like Christ. And Christ assured them that this would happen. And his point was, this ought to be a motivation, the anticipation of being forever in the Lord's presence and enjoying fellowship with him and symbolized by wearing white apparel that ought to provide incentive for continued faithfulness to say no to the world around us. Not only for the few in Sardis who were standing against the tide of apathy and the culture and everything, this is meant for us today. It ought to be an anticipation to us to say I'm going to stay alert. I'm going to stay watchful. I'm going to stay separated from this world around me. I'm not going to buy into their narratives and their agenda. I'm going to base what I believe on Scripture. That'll be incentive for us. look what else he says? He says, for they are worthy. Of course, we know theologically, it's a dangerous thing to say, you know, when you're theologically trained. They are worthy. What did Christ mean by that? Well, he did not mean that their worthiness was because of their own merit. Just like our worthiness is not based upon our own merit, any worthiness that Christians have is imputed to them, credited to them. If a person is in Christ, that person is counted worthy because of Christ's own worthiness, not because of our own. And to be in Christ means that person has come to genuinely trust him as the Lord and Savior of their life. They're in Christ, and that makes us worthy in a sense because we know him, the one who is ultimately worthy. It's just another way for Jesus to acknowledge that the few faithful were the only ones in this church that were genuinely saved. The others were not, the vast majority. Well, then he added further and more specific information about the reward given to this faithful remnant. Look what he says in verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. Now this statement about being clothed in white, it comes obviously on the heels of what was just said in verse 4 about walking with the Lord in white. So the idea of wearing white is obviously related here. So again, white represents purity, likeness, a faithful, non-compromising spirit. And that stands in contrast to the ones who stain their garments who compromise. It's just that Christ now calls the few faithful ones he calls them something else, overcomers. The overcomer is the same thing as saying they live their lives not giving in to the influence of the culture around them and the agendas of the culture.
1: They live their
0: lives not even giving in to the influence of the dead church members they were with. Of course, Christ was telling them if the others in the church would repent, they could be overcomers as well. verse goes on to confirm, that this future, pure relationship to Christ is permanently guaranteed. He says in verse 5. I mean, here's what he said. You're going to walk with me in white. You're going to be clothed in white garments because you're the overcomers. Heaven proves that. You persevered in your faithfulness all the way to the end. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. The question is this. What does he mean? Does this verb erase or wipe out? Does this speak of the erasure, the literal erasure of a name from a written page or something as something that can literally happen? Or was it Jesus' way of saying something that's just not even possible? Okay. Well, we do need to acknowledge something. There is a possible connection to a couple of Old Testament passages. We'll look at them briefly. Exodus 32, verse 32 and 33, and Psalm 69, verse 28. Here's Exodus 32. I'll just read verse 33. Exodus 32, 33. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. So is that the same thing as what Christ is referring to here? And I believe the right answer to that is not exactly. They're saying something different. Our verse is not a threat. Our verse is a promise. That makes the two verses different right there. Plus, the book in Exodus is not the book of life, okay, described here in Revelation 3, nor what we're going to read in a moment in Revelation 13. It it was a book that referred to the book of the living. And so what this was a a threat of was to those who were physically alive, it was a threat not of eternal damnation, but of physical death. So that's Exodus 32. What about Psalm 69, verse 28? Here it says, the, the, the writer of the psalmist says, may they, referring to the rebellious people of the world, may they be blotted out of the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. It seems to say that the book of life has everybody's name written on it, and that those who are saved stay written, and the ones who are not saved are blotted out. But it's not exactly saying that in Psalm 69. You understand that Psalm 69 is an imprecatory type psalm. What that means is the psalmist is recognizing the guilt of God's enemies and he's saying that when they're enemies, they should not be saved. They should suffer eternal judgment. He's basically saying something like this there. May they be like those whose names don't belong in this book. There are people whose names don't belong in this book. May you treat them like that. So here's the basic dilemma in interpreting what Christ says. Let's go back to Revelation 3. He just said, I will not blot, erase his name from the book of life. can me one of two things. He could mean, I've already said it, all people born are recorded in the book of life. It's the book of all the living. And the erasing happens Only when a person dies in the state of never having trusted Christ as their Savior. So at that point, then their names are blotted out because they died without trusting Christ. Jesus would be making a promise something like this if that's what he meant. I promise to you, Sardians, if you trusted in me before you died, I promise you your name will not be blotted out like that. Or he could be referring to the book of life not as a list of the living but a book that is about spiritual life. And the ones listed in the book from the very beginning are only the ones who will come to have spiritual life, who will come to trust Christ. That means it's a book of God's elect and those who become the saved only. If that's what he means, then why is he worded this way? He is making a positive guarantee by expressing something negatively, just to make his point. If your name is in this book because you belong to me, I promise you, as I've always promised you, there's nothing that could happen that would make me erase your name from this book. Now, for me, the decision of which one to say Jesus meant is influenced by John's usage of this idea throughout the book of Revelation. Okay, So I think we need to look at that. The phrase, the book of life, is used other times... And I'm not going to read all of them, I'm just going to read maybe two or three, of believers whose spiritual destiny was determined because their names had already been written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Listen to Revelation 13.8. You can look ahead. Revelation 13.8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. And there, he had to read the contest. He's talking about the beast that comes up out of the sea. Verse 1 of Revelation 13. Is in the end times. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, the beast. Everyone, at least, whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. We get some insight there in how John uses this term. That the names written in the book of life were written in there before the foundation of the world. And they would be saved. They would not worship the beast. Revelation 17 verse 8. 17.8, 17.8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see all that and see the beast. There's other uses of that. It's called in Revelation 21, the lamb's book of life. It's his. But I want to tell you about another use of the word book. It's also in Revelation. It's in Revelation twenty verse 12. When the book is used in a singular form, it's used to stand in contrast to something else called the books that are plural. And the books that are plural is a way of expressing in the book of Revelation, the record in God's mind of all the sins of all those who are not in the book of life, all the sins of unbelievers. They are going to be judged on the basis of those sins in the books at the end of history. Listen to Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, singular, which is the book of life. Jump down to verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All that to say... I believe what Jesus means here in this passage is that if they are genuine believers, and the few were, then their names were already written down in the book of life, and this is a guarantee of them that once saved, always saved, that true believers will persevere in the faith. It's a guarantee that they are destined for an eternal inheritance in heaven, and nothing will ever prevent them from possessing that. And when it's hard to stand against the culture, Jesus means for this to be a motivation. Persevere in your faith, even if you're the few. Because of what's coming. Now, throughout John's writings, you find this dichotomy there. The names of those who ultimately prove themselves as unbelievers, they're not associated with the book of life in John's writings. They're only associated with the books of judgment. Their names are never mentioned, unbelievers, as having been written in the book of life. Now, there are good people who disagree over that what he re- refers to. Once again, just like I said before, regardless of the position you take, the idea that's present in the verse is a promise of something permanent. It's still, you get that. Either view you hold. It's a promise of permanent, guaranteed deliverance rather than something else. Judgment. That much is clear. Your name is in the book of life and nothing will erase that. The absence of a person's name in the book of life, it's still true, whichever view you hold, it means they'll be excluded from heaven and from the kingdom. They'll be cast in the lake of fire. This is the reality of the remnant. It's small, but they're going to be rewarded, and the final part of the promise is still in verse 5, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, it's hard to know exactly how that's going to play out. The idea may be that literally, the Lord's going to read the names of the believers' names out of the book of life in recognition of their final salvation, but the bottom line is that those who confess Christ's name here on earth, Christ is going to confess their name before the Father, and that means He's affirming a promise He made even during his earthly ministry. You remember what he said in Matthew chapter ten verse thirty two therefore this is what christ says matthew ten thirty two Everyone who confesses me before men. Let's stop there for a moment. In the context of this church of, of Sardis, and that would mean everyone who stayed faithful, everyone who didn't give in to the culture, everyone who didn't give in to the deadness and to the fakery and to just the being Christian in name only, everyone who, who chose to, to take it seriously and to be motivated by who Christ is and what he gives to us, that person has confessed me before men. doesn't matter what the culture is doing doesn't matter what's happening at your work and your job and the consequences of it. The few, the remnant, the faithful confess Christ still. And he says in Matthew 10, 32, then I will also confess him before my Father is in heaven. Why? Because perseverance and faithfulness go hand in hand with being true believers. There's just not a thing in Scripture about true believers falling away and becoming unsaved. That's a misinterpretation of some passages like in Hebrews and elsewhere. But notice he did say, I'll confess you before the angels as well, just so you'll know. He said that in Luke chapter 12, verse 8. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him before the angels of God as well. So here he brings them both together. Those who are the faithful few, the remnant, have this promise. They claim the name. They're the ones who continue to not compromise their witness. They'll be confessed before the Father and angels. But... Those who are Christians in name only. They claim the name, but they continue to compromise their witness. They're going to be exposed as having no true Christian name on the final day of judgment. Lastly, section number six, the invitation to respond. The invitation to respond. So real quickly, all of them, the description of the speaker, the summary of the problem, the outline of the remedy, given two ways, generally and specifically, the necessity of a warning, the reality of the remnant, they're small, but they'll be rewarded. Last section, the invitation to respond. And this is something we see it more than once. Verse six He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying here to the churches. In in the book of Revelation, this is Jesus' repeated method he uses over and over of issuing to the believers an individual call for the hearers and the listeners, the readers to respond. He's the only one, by the way, in Scripture that uses this invitation. And every time you find it, he uses it in occasions when he is speaking to people of their need for significant change. In this case, it's for the lethargic believers, if they have started to become complacent and being influenced, to wake up because God could use them to wake up before it's too late to save their church even while they're taking comfort that their salvation is secure. But even more so, he's issuing this invitation to the pretenders, the ones in name only, to heed Christ's warning of impending judgment. Until Christ returns, it's not too late for dead churches to find spiritual renewal. It's not too late for people to repent. I just want you to notice one more thing about what he said there. Notice how he put the words, the word church in plural. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. He didn't say to this church. He said to all these churches, all seven of them. That lets us know that even though some messages were specifically directed to particular churches, each church was to read what was said to the other churches and to benefit from it. The instruction to profit from it and were to do the same thing these were churches that actually existed they weren't symbolic representations of each of different sections of church history I've, i learned that growing up actually that this was all especially in a hyper dispensational sort of form these all represented different eras of church history you know in the early years it was the church of this and then it was the church of ephesus and then it was the church of thyatira and then we we moved into the history of the church of sardis and so forth no all these churches were legitimately real and they all represent what can go wrong in churches and Christians lives all throughout church history. So sadly, this church that is given to us in this message that was articulated so long ago, this church perfectly pictures the situations in many churches today, even in our own city. They're dead. They are Christian in name only. They may be busy, But if their deeds are known by Christ, and they're not accepted by Him. You can look at them from a distance and think, well, they must be fine. Maybe look how large they are, look how famous they are, look how much money they have, something. Look how active they are, busy they are. Yet the spiritual darkness of cultural compromise can also be found, potentially. Do you know that's true of seminaries as well? So grateful for our seminary here and for solid seminaries because What you're finding about the deadness and the complacency of this church can happen in seminaries as well. It's happened in in history where they had a good beginning and they changed over time. And there are seminaries like that all over our country that are spitting out graduates who come out already compromising with the thinking of the culture. This is for today. I really regret that I had to teach it with this kind of voice because the church needs to hear this challenge today to take the words of Christ seriously. Because what ultimately counts for us, this is for Twin City Bible Church, what ultimately counts is not what the community thinks of us. It's not what the world says about accepting us. It's about our relationship to Christ being genuine. Because Christ always knows the truth about us. And we want him to be pleased with us. Let's pray. Father, I trust that you will take these feeble efforts to deal with such an important passage in the book of Revelation to at least cause us, you've given so given us so many faithful people here. The, the remnant here is not just few. This is a church that not only has a rich history, this is a church that you have blessed beyond what we could think or ask for years now. And so we come with grateful hearts knowing that there's nothing worthy about us in our own merit. But it's only because we've tried to stay true to you and to your word. So Lord, I pray if nothing else, you would just help us to remember as a church to not become complacent,
1: not to give in
0: to the thinking of the culture, to stay on the path of what Scripture has given us of what a real church is and how they're to be and what they're to do when it comes to their mission in this world. And Lord, I pray that certainly in any group of people in any church, there can be pretenders in name only. So I do pray that you would open their hearts to genuinely believe and to say, I want to serve Christ as my Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.